Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 0313, the Republic of Austria versus Maria Altman. Mr. Cooper. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Landgraf and its progeny provide the basis for a decision in this case. In enacting the FSIA, Congress did not direct that it apply retrospectively to events that occurred prior to its enactment. Moreover, application of the 1976 expropriation exception <coughs> to alleged conduct that occurred in and before 1948 would change the legal consequences of that conduct and therefore be impermissibly retroactive. Why, why would it change the legal consequences? It, it, wouldn't it just change where you can where you can sue? No, in fundamental terms, it would change the legal consequences. Um, prior to 1976, there was complete immunity in this country for um, claims of expropriation. Uh, foreign sovereigns had an expectation that they would not be hailed into our courts. Um, to answer for um, the internal uh, exercise of their sovereign activities. Um, and that is the fundamental aspect. Did of the Tate letter have any uh, coverage prior to 76, the so-called Tate letter from the State Department? The so-called Tate letter changed um, the State Department's position with respect to um, commercial activities as of 1952. This conduct all preceded 1952 mm -hmm. and concerned what has always been recognized as essentially public acts, that is, acts of expropriation. Uh, but to finish the answer to Justice uh, Scalia, um, the, uh, the issue that underlies um, the whole concept of foreign sovereign immunity at its very basis is the question of whether our courts, um, in the case of United States jurisdiction, um, will exercise uh, jurisdiction to um, question, pass judgment on um, the sovereign conduct of foreign states acting in their own, uh, within their own borders um, with respect to um, property within their own country in this case. Um, and that's something that as a matter of comedy and as a matter of um, international concepts of um, orderly relationships between sovereigns um, that I'm we don't tolerate. Well, first, I think you recognize that the suit could be brought inside Austria. And then what are the countries that don't follow the, well, the absolute rule? Then it seems to me that Justice Scalia is right. It's a question of where you can sue. You, you, the, your argument is that the United States has been self-denying, but countries like Austria itself that don't follow that absolute rule could be a proper form. With respect, Justice Ginsburg, um, the, uh, this issue of the adoption of the restrictive theory um, by any country is really a red herring here. Um, the expropriation exception concerns itself with um, what has always been recognized as a public act, and that is the act of expropriation, something that can only be done um, by a governmental entity through the exercise but I, of As I understand authority. this claim, it's not the original um, expropriation is when Austria isn't even a country, because this happened in the Nazi period, right? No, Your Honor. Um, the United States position um, throughout uh, World War II and thereafter um, has been that uh, Austria retained its sovereignty, um, that it was an occupied state um, by the Nazi regime. Um, the United States immediately then, recognized Then why was there a second republic? The Second Republic was the um, reconstituted government of the State of Austria, but the United States position, and it is the executive's position 
that has binding authority with respect to the sovereign status. The executive's position was that Austria was always a state. More importantly, Your Honor. But uh, may I continue? Because I thought that this claim, whatever you say about Austria's status in the, at the time of the Anschluss, that it's not necessarily about the stealing of the goods. It's about the retention of the goods. We don't believe that that's a correct reading of Section 1603, 1605A3. 1605A3 concerns itself with the expropriation of property. Um, the Congress um, articulated um, the power for the enactment of the expropriation exception um, as the um, power to um, define and punish uh, violations of the laws of nations. And it is not even arguably the case um, that a possession of expropriated property, especially as it's been argued by the respondent, not necessarily even having been expropriated by the defendant country, um, is a violation of international law. So if you know that you've taken from an expropriator, that's all right under international law? It's not a question of whether it's all right. It's a question of whether Congress decided that it was a basis for an exception to the longstanding and general rule of law in this country, that is, sovereign immunity. So in other words, has, has Congress determined that one of the narrow and specified exceptions um, to foreign sovereign immunity um, is the mere possession of property. Is it sovereign immunity or is it the act of state doctrine? It's sovereign immunity, Your Honor. Well, but I mean, even uh, there there are two things that happen here. The sovereign can be brought into court, but more than that, the sovereign can be held to account for the act of the sovereign on its own territory. The latter, it seems to me, can be described as substantive law. The former, just allowing the sovereign to come into your or allowing your court to entertain a suit against the sovereign, is is just just where suit goes. It has nothing to do with the outcome of the suit. This court. So I, I wish you could tell me that it did have to do with the act of state doctrine, because that would be that would be a substantive change, and that should not be retroactive. The, the act of state doctrine is an independent doctrine um, that is uh, not before the court today. The sovereign immunity doctrine is before the court today. Sovereign immunity, this court decided in Verlinden, um, is a matter of substantive federal law. This court made that decision after careful consideration um, and with specific reference to um, the FSIA and Congress' power to enact it and concluded that it was more than a jurisdictional statute. Moreover, in the Hughes case, this Court determined that merely articulating um, a statute's terms uh, in terms of jurisdiction um, does not uh, remove it from the retroactivity analysis we urge is the rule of law that, de- that determines the outcome of this case. Quite the contrary. Hughes made it clear that in circumstances um, very much like these, um, where a cause of action was not um, uh, previously allowed, and here um, the immunity um, kept a, uh, an action for expropriation from being adjudicated in American courts. Under those circumstances, as of 1976, there was a fundamental change um, in the law with respect to uh, in, in foreign Hughes, sovereigns. In Hughes, there were there were other changes besides uh, besides the jurisdictional one. There there there, there were defenses that were eliminated. Uh, I, I don't think Hughes is a very good good case for you, but Verlinden, it seems to me, is. Uh, is, is closer, uh, but we were determining there whether it was a substantive law or not for a very different purpose, for the existence of, of power on the part of the federal government to, uh, to enact the statute. That's a, that's a bit different from the purpose uh, uh, for which we're determining whether it's a substantive law here. The interest of the United States, Your Honor, um, in the um, — the administration of cases against foreign sovereigns has long been recognized by this Court as being um, a, a matter of great national interest. The question of when we decide um, to uh, exercise jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns um, is an essential component of the way um, this country um, interacts with other countries. It's an area in which the Constitution conferred responsibility on the political branches. Um, the executive exercised that responsibility for the vast portion of this country's history and then submitted to Congress um, an act, the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, which Congress then enacted. 
None of that's in question. The only thing that's in question is when Congress enacted this, did they intend it to have the effect <coughs> of, of uh, what should I say, de-immunizing, if you want to put, put it that way, prior acts or not? I, and it, we're, we're not questioning the authority of the executive or the authority of the legislature or the importance of this matter. The, essentially, the issue is what did Congress mean by this statute? And Congress in this Court has um, clearly articulated in, in Landgraf um, and in the, the several cases that followed it exactly how we determine um, what it was that Congress um, did uh, as it relates to the retroactive aspects of those changes in, in, in law. In, in our domestic jurisprudence, we um, are cautious about retroactivity because it destroys settled expectations. Uh, is that same rationale applicable when we're talking about foreign sovereign immunity? Or are there other considerations such as the dignity or of the foreign state? We think when um, the issue of uh, a concept of basic fairness um, so close to the root of our understanding of what um, constitutes fair treatment um, uh, of any individual, that no less standard, well, no less I, rigorous standard that, than Landgraf should apply. That leads to my, my next question. If we're talking about expectations, uh, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that in 1948, uh, Austria uh, was, and all countries were on notice, uh, that immunity uh, — would be judged later on by acts of uh, the executive uh, or, in this case, by an act of Congress. It wasn't the expectation here that there would be a later determination of whether there was immunity. The expectation was that, um, based on uh, the general concepts of international law and general concepts of comedy, which are not just a question of whim or courtesy, but rather a question of um, fair treatment of one sovereign by another with the expectation um, that the sovereign who is declining jurisdiction um, would be fairly treated in the courts of other countries. But still, uh, whether or not there would be immunity, uh, Austria and all other countries knew, would be a later determination so that the expectation they had uh, was to that extent uh, necessarily, it seems to me, diminished. The expect qualified. expectations are only one of a number of factors that the Court has um, ah, referred so to in Landgraf. So, so there are additional factors other than expectations. What are the well, additional factors? Um, Landgraf quoted Justice Story um, in his 1814 articulation of um, what was relevant. Um, but the factors are um, expectations, changed circumstances, and um, changed considerations um, for the parties in, in any um, case that increases liability, for instance. Um, for uh, a particular act. It's Let's stick, stick with expectations for the moment, Let's, before you get off of expectations. I don't know that we protect expectations of the sort that, that you're talking about. Let's assume that a state which has not, uh, not previously allowed a tort action by, uh, by two out-of-state people, between two out-of-state people, to be brought within that state. Let's assume they change their law and they say, you know, in the future you, you can bring a tort action. Uh, do you think that uh, uh, that we would say you're, you're disrupting people's expectations if you allow those persons uh, who are who are the parties to a tort in another state before this statute was passed to sue in the new state? Our concepts of what expectation? You know, I expected not to be able to be sued in in Virginia. As it turns out, I can I can be sued in Virginia. Did that really affect? My action in, in this case, I can't believe that Austria, when it took this action, had in mind, oh, I, I, I know that I, that I can't be sued for this in the United States. I may be suable a lot of other places. Reliance. Suable here, but I'm not suable in the United States. Who cares? That kind of particularized reliance analysis has never been a part of this Court's retroactivity analysis. Um, it, the Court doesn't look for purposes of um, civil or criminal cases. Can we find evidence that the individual, when that individual acted, or the party when that um, party acted, had in mind the current state of law? The question has been, 
as a matter of common-sense understanding, is the new law a change in the consequences for past conduct? So you're, you're distinguishing reliance and expectation. And expectation is relevant even though there may be no reliance. Do, is, do I understand you correctly? We are focused on the changed legal consequences, not the subjective intention of the party in any respect. But is it, do, do, do you articulate that in terms of the country's expectation even though the country may not have relied upon that expectation when it acted. Are you not, drawing that distinction? Not solely. We are not focused on the expectation component of the test. We are focused primarily, although I think expectations could be um, a factor, we think that the more important aspect of the analysis is the changed legal circumstances. That's, that's the core of And the changed the, legal circumstance that I understand you're emphasizing here is uh, that uh, at least prior to 1976, this particular possession of expropriated property, as well as the expropriation itself, would not have been cognizable in the court of any country unless possibly the country itself, which is an act of grace, later decided uh, to, to make its own reparations. But subject to that, a section, that, that exception, it would not, be co- would not have been cognizable anywhere. That's absolutely correct. Okay. If there are no further questions at this point, I'd like to reserve time. Very well, Mr. McCoy. Rather, Mr. Cooper. Uh, Mr. Hunger, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The position of the United States has always been that sovereign immunity bars U.S. courts from adjudicating pre-1976 expropriation claims against foreign sovereigns. As this Court recognized in Dames and Moore, claims by nationals of one country against the government of another are frequently sources of friction between the two sovereigns. Since 19, uh, prior, prior to 1976, therefore, and absent a waiver of sovereign immunity, expropriation claims against foreign sovereigns have always been addressed through diplomatic negotiations and foreign claims processes and not in U.S. courts. And the United States has entered into numerous agreements with foreign countries regarding such claims, always against and with the background understanding prior to 1976 that such claims could not be adjudicated in U.S. courts. Is, is the friction that's feared in part based on changed expectations, or is that just irrelevant to the analysis? Changed expectations are relevant in, in the general sense, not the particular, particularized expectations of a particular state, but that it, it is a general rule and understanding of international law set forth in the Vienna Convention on Treaties and, and elsewhere that changes in international law, including changes in sovereign immunity law, are not retroactively applied. And there are numerous examples of the latter point cited in our brief at footnote 14. And, country, and it was an absolute rule in 1948 and before. Absolute rule based on the act of state doctrine or on sovereign immunity? This, this sovereign case. immunity. Sovereign, it was an absolute rule of but, sovereign immunity. As you stated the proposition, you're limited to appropriation claims. Well, that's what we're addressing here. This, the, the absolute doctrine, the, the, the doctrine of absolute immunity was <laughs> applicable to all claims. There is no, there's not a single instance of any case or State Department determination prior to 1952 in which a suit was permitted to proceed against a foreign sovereign. And, and then that was suit. the Tate letter that The Tate letter changed 52. with respect to commercial activity. But, of course, this is not a, a commercial — it's not even alleged to be within the commercial activity exception. We're not talking but, about commercial but activity. Why, why is it that retroactivity — retroactivity causes more friction because — Because it would be inconsistent with the understandings with which the United States and these foreign uh, governments operated under with claims resolution agreements with numerous countries, not merely arising out of World War II, but out of — uh, uh, communist government expropriations and uh, numerous agreements regarding this type of — I thought part of the baseline of, of, of immunity law was that other foreign countries, such as Austria, knew that from time to time uh, we would 
uh, confer immunity or not confer immunity depending on the decision of the executive. So I don't see how well how settled this expectation or this other reliance is. The the case the doctrine of absolute sovereign immunity. There were no there are no exceptions. There there could not possibly have been any expectation or reason to believe that the executive of this country would deny immunity in an expropriation case because that had never happened in the history of the absolute doctrine, uh, immunity doctrine for 150 years. No suit, again, no suit in the United States has been permitted, was permitted to proceed on any theory against a foreign sovereign in personam. It would, it was, would be absolutely unprecedented for such a suit to have been permitted pr- prior to 1976, in fact, in the expropriation context. Would and that so, be true of, would that be true of Austria itself if the tables were turned? It's <laughs> unclear whether a, a court action could have been brought. At least we're not familiar with anything in the record that indicates whether a court action could have been brought in 1948 under, for example, the restitution law that Austria passed in 1947. But that's court- irrelevant because it can't be the retroactivity analysis has to be term- determined on a section by section or, or provision by provision basis. It can't be a case by case, country by country. Well, it was relevant to something that Mr. Cooper said. He said this was a matter of fairness, and we want others to be tr- treated, treat others treat others well so that they will treat us well. That sounds to me like he was speaking in reciprocity terms. Reciprocity is also an important consideration, Your Honor. If this law were to be applied retroactively, it could open the United States to reciprocal claims brought in foreign courts, which would further complicate our foreign relations. How, how does it work if, in fact, you treat this statute as purely jurisdictional? You have to, one, establish jurisdiction. They have it under 1330. You have to have venue. They establish that. And then you look to see if it's wiped out by sovereign immunity, and A3 says this is a case in which rights in property taken in violation of international law are an issue. All right. So suppose you said, yes, th- that is such a case, even though the expropriation took place in 48 or earlier, perhaps. Then the State Department could come in and say, well, you don't win if you wanted to. You'd say, after all, there first is the act of state doctrine. And this was not clearly in violation of international law in 1948. Or you could file, what is it called? It's a, 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 an information or what is it? It's a suggestion of something or other. It's a, uh, well, prior a to statement th- of interest. And you say it's the, there's, a, there's a foreign policy interest here. And so that way, the State Department's in control. And if it feels that it would hurt foreign affairs to have the stoot go ahead, it says either act of state if it's not clear, or a statement of interest, and uh, which is a kind of political question, I guess. And so well, wh- wh- how does that, in other words, where am I wrong in thinking there's no real foreign policy concern here in respect to the application of this statute as a purely jurisdictional matter? We believe that, the, as we said in our brief, and, and part of the reason we're here today is that there are foreign policy concerns implicated. I know, and what I want to know is what was wrong with what I just said. You see, as I was saying it, did you follow it? Well, I'm not One. sure I understand. We are here today saying the United States has an interest in not having this ex- expropriation exception applied retroactively because it would undermine the background. I assumption. understand that, and I'm trying to get to the reasoning. And my thought was, I don't see why it affects foreign affairs. You can explain why. I understand you believe it does, and I'm sure you're right. But I just want to know why. And the reason I find it difficult to see why is because it seems to me you still, even assuming jurisdiction, can come in and say this was an act of state, this seizure in 1948, or you can file a statement of interest, which I take it is saying there's a big foreign policy matter here, and we're working it out in other forums, and you courts stay out of it. Now, now, am I wrong about that? I'm sure you're going to say I am wrong, and I want to know why. Well, we don't perceive a meaningful difference between an amicus brief expressing foreign policy concerns, which is what we have filed, and a statement of interest expressing foreign policy ah, concerns. Ah, well, then the correct result in this case is to say, yes, this statute applies. It applies to... Uh, 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 1948 seizures, because they were in violation of international law. Now, the State Department files a statement of interest saying to the Court there is a valid foreign policy reason for not going ahead in this case. 
I but take the, it, by the way, you promised you wouldn't in this case, but nonetheless. All right. So, so, so if, if that would be just up to you. So if you do it, then the Court will not go ahead and adjudicate this case, even though there is jurisdiction under the FSIA. Justice Breyer. I'm missing something, so you explain it to me. Well, several things. First of all, it's not true that we promised not to express a view. I'm sorry I brought that up. Take that out. That has to do with a particular agreement entered into in 2001, and it is certainly our position that that agreement does not cover this case, and that was the position we took. Um, but again, with respect to the — we are expressing the foreign policy concerns that I've identified, which are generalized and go to the retroactive application of this statute generally. We're not talking just about Austria here. There are claims and potential claims against countless foreign countries, many of whom — many of which would involve claims that were previously addressed. Some of them do not involve the active state doctrine, and you you want us to hold that that, uh, that this uh, would be a retroactive application of this jurisdictional statute, no matter matter what claim is made, whether it's an active state claim or not. If if you were limiting it to active state, I could understand it, because that's a substantive substantive matter. But you want us to say — no, no suits can be brought uh, that uh, out of actions that, are, that that arose before this. And principles of retroactivity, the presumption against retro- retroactivity, require that this is not a substance. It begs the question whether it is retroactive. This is not purely. No, Your Honor, this is not purely jurisdictional. The fact that a, a, a if it's true that a similar type claim could have been brought in Austria at the time, that cannot change the retroactivity analysis. Because otherwise, retroactivity would be determined country by country, and the fact that a, that a state, by, by an exercise of grace, has chosen to allow claims would somehow deprive it, would, would change the rules, which can't be the case. Give me the an second. example. I, I only have one question in this case, and I've just said it. I want to be sure I get the best answer I can. So give me an example of an instance where it would hurt the foreign affairs interest of the United States if the law said you proceed as I outlined. We have jurisdiction, but you are free to file act of state or statement of interest. May I answer, Your Honor? Yes. There are currently cases pending against countries such as Japan and Poland, with which which this country previously entered into agreements which both sides thought had resolved the issue entirely. And to now retroactively apply a substantive provision that this Court recognized in Ex parte Peru is a substantive, not merely jurisdictional, but a substantive legal defense, to apply that retroactively would be to change settled expectations, change the rules, and it should not be done. Thank you, Mr. Hunger. Mr. Schoenberg, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. We believe there are four independent grounds for affirming the lower court in this case. First, as the Court has just discussed, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act regulates the exercise of jurisdiction, not the underlying (coughs) primary conduct of the parties. Therefore, the Act does not operate retrospectively. Well, why doesn't it retro- why, why isn't it just as easy to say that it does operate retrospectively? Because the question is, when should it exercise jurisdiction for a particular purpose? Uh, and on the one hand, there's no point in exercising jurisdiction now, uh, if it's not going to adjudicate later. So, so far as the court is concerned, presumably it's going to adjudicate on a substantive issue. That being the purpose, why can you, why really does it make sense to draw that neat line? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I understand the question. Uh, why, why, why isolate jurisdiction when we all know that the purpose of exercising the jurisdiction is to exercise it for the purpose of adjudicating a particular kind of case and to apply a particular substantive law to it? Because the, the operative event, the event that's being regulated by a jurisdictional statute, as the Court has said, is the exercise of the Court's power regardless of when the underlying acts took place. The, the Court has differentiated between the primary conduct of the parties and the secondary conduct, which is the exercise of the Court's power. For example, it, just last term in the Dole Food case, the Court found that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is not intended to chill the conduct of the foreign state. Rather, it's there to decide whether now, presently, it would embarrass the conduct of foreign relations. And the 25 years ago, over 25 years ago, Congress decided that cases such as these should be allowed to go forward. Well, the government of the United States has just said you're going to embarrass foreign relations 
whether the United States' position uh, with respect to uh, a consideration in interpreting this Act is raised now or whether it's raised after jurisdiction is assumed uh, and, and you get to the next stage. Why not, why not get into it now uh, and consider it in interpreting uh, the, the scope of the Act, in particular uh, its, its retroactivity? This would be a much different case if the foreign government had ever said that the prosecution of this case would interfere with foreign relations, as it has in all of these other cases. But it hasn't in this case. It hasn't filed a suggestion of immunity. It hasn't filed a statement of interest. As a matter of fact, it required Austria to withdraw the act of state doctrine defense when it was asserted below. This case But itself, I thought it just told us that it would be an interference three minutes ago. Yeah. The concern, as I understand the government's concern, is that in other cases that are pending against Japan, Mexico, etc., there might be foreign relation issues. Well, why, why should we look further if the government says that? I mean, isn't that conclusive in a case like this? I don't, I don't think so. I think there are two responses. First, the amount of deference that is given to the government's litigation position under Bowen versus Georgetown and also... Well, those are not cases involving foreign relations. That, that's correct. And that's why the second issue is very important. I believe... It was Justice Powell who said in the first National Citibank case that, that jurisdiction is not the same as justiciability. And what the government is talking about is a justiciability question. Does the act of state doctrine, for example, prevent this case from going forward? I, I'll give you another example, Your Honor. In the same district court judge who handled our case and granted jurisdiction in our case, Judge Cooper, also was given a class action case asserting World War II-era claims against Austria. This is the Anderman case. And just last April, she threw out that entire class action because the government had come in and filed a statement of interest and asserted its interest in the, in the case. And she found, very similar to the courts holding in Garamendi last term, that the political question doctrine was implicated when the government comes in and says that the prosecution of this particular case will interfere with foreign relations. But I've never heard any in any other case the government say that a case that does not implicate foreign relations, as this one does, should be dismissed on jurisdiction grounds merely because we have justiciability concerns with other cases. What, what is it uh, if uh, — what do you reply to their — what I take is their argument, that if we say there's jurisdiction here so that this covers pre-1952 expropriations, think of all the Eastern European bloc, what used to be — millions of pieces of real estate, etc., cetera, uh, and uh, Japan, Peru, uh, all over the world, uh, South America, there have been expropriations, and suddenly our court uh, becomes uh, become uh, uh, places where you litigate uh, who owns property all over the world, at least if you trace an interest to an American citizen, uh, for expropriations that may have taken under Maximilian of Mexico. I mean, uh, you, see, you see that kind we're, of problem, I think, is what they're trying to raise. Right. We're very What's the answer to that? We're very sensitive to the government's concern, the can of worms argument here. And, and I think the answer to it is that all of those cases present much more difficult problems than this one does in terms of, for example, the statute of limitations. Your Honor, the statute of limitations is designed to get rid of old claims. In our case, because of Austria's post-war conduct of concealment. Uh, statute of limitations. Let's go on. Let's list a few other things. Right. There might be instances there, where the statute hasn't run for all right. kinds of local reasons. There's, I don't know what the statute of limitations rule is in Peru. Right. And, and I, I can think of at least five uh, yeah. problems that cases, old cases would have. One would be statute of limitations. Form nonconvenience may be a problem. Uh, it wasn't in this case. The act of state doctrine we've mentioned is also a serious problem in many of these cases. You have interference with treaties, which is also not this case. And you have interference with executive agreements, which is also not this case. And they come in and file a letter, in your opinion, assuming you have jurisdiction, to say, look, judge, we don't want you to litigate this case. It interferes with our foreign affairs, period. Yes. They can. They can file that. I think it would have to be considered... And the they give a good term. reason. They give a good reason. If there were a good reason why Austria's ownership of paintings would interfere with foreign policy. But that's for a court to judge rather than the executive? Well, there's a certain amount of deference that would have to be given. But to no, but you, you, you're saying that the executive could say and have a give a good reason and the court could say, no, we don't, we don't approve of that. I think under under this Court's doctrines in foreign affairs policy, there isn't automatic deference given to the government's 
suggestion that a particular case will interfere with foreign policy. But in most cases, I think it would be quite clear. This well, case well, what, what, what case is it that says that the court should decide rather than the executive in a case like this? Well, I believe, for example, in, in Sabatino, the court did not immediately accept the government's position as to whether a case should or should not go forward. Uh, and, and said that it was — now, I don't know whether that — whether Sabatino and that part of Sabatino it would still be good law today. It, I don't think that's — It wasn't a court opinion, was it? Right. It was a plurality opinion. But uh, there is a suggestion. It may not be an answered question, Your Honor. I'm not sure I can point to a case that would, would talk about the deference. But, again, we're talking about not our situation, because the government has not filed any suggestion of immunity or, or statement of interest suggesting that this case would interfere with foreign policy. Could I ask about the act of state doctrine? I mean, even — why isn't that in play here? I mean, even if giving uh, — a holding uh, Austria here would not be acting retroactively insofar as the exercise of jurisdiction is concerned, why wouldn't holding Austria liable for an act of state which previously — would not be uh, a basis for, for, for challenge in this country. Why wouldn't that be acting retroactively? Well, we haven't addressed the act of state because it hasn't been raised, uh, and it was an argument that was dropped. I, I can answer the question, though. Uh, the act of state doctrine, as I understand it, is designed to prevent courts from entering into situations where there is no settled basis for deciding the case. In other words, in the Cuban cases where there's a regime that has a completely different property system than ours, it would be unwise for the courts to venture into this political dispute over whether communism or capitalism is the appropriate way to adjudicate these cases. In our case, we have a treaty. Article 26 of the Austrian State Treaty says Austria must return property taken from Jewish families during the Nazi era. So there's no dispute between the two countries as to whether uh, or what type of law would apply in this case. And under Sabatino, it's very much qualified by the absence of a treaty governing the rule of decision. So I, I don't think this case could ever pose an act of state problem. Other cases do, though. That, and that's, that's really the point. These cases against Mexico, against Japan, against Poland could potentially pose serious act of state problems. This particular case doesn't. We'd be happy to litigate. Whether it poses a problem or not, the suit is is resting upon, is challenging an act of the state of, of Austria that, that, that occurred within Austria. That, that's correct. Every suit against a foreign sovereign that's authorized under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act has the potential of interfering with foreign relations to the extent that it right. concerns the so The issue of would country. be, should that be given retroactive application? In the act-of-state context. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't think — This is the act-of-state context. I mean, that's what's going the, on here. The act-of-state doctrine is a choice-of-law doctrine, as I understand it. Uh, and, and so it, again, is not something that really operates retroactively, I think. I, I, I don't think, to, to, to echo what was said before, that any country could have an expectation in how the act-of-state doctrine will apply in a particular case. How about the uh, public acts? This, this is a public act. <laughs> well, it, whether it's a public or private act to collect paintings, uh, I'm not sure is, let's, let's is so clear. Let's assume it's a public act. Does it have an expectation that uh, that, that that will be adjudicated uh, under the then prevailing norms? I, well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we we do have to establish that that this property was taken in violation of international law, and I think that part of the statute. Uh, clearly expects that the taking be adjudicated according to the state of international law at the time. So to that degree, I think, yes. Uh, but whether, whether it's a public or private act, I think, doesn't determine the, the retroactivity question. But we're told that at least in this country, such acts were never adjudicated in foreign I, courts. I, I, I understood that to be the government's position. I don't know how the government explains the Santissima Trinidad case, which is a case concerning private property on a ship where not one but several sovereigns claimed an ownership interest. And Justice Story said that our courts, of course, have to adjudicate the ownership of that private property, regardless of whether it was taken as part of a public act. In the Santissima Trinidad, it's a confusing case, and I'm not sure, even having read it many times, 
how the ship actually came to be in its final location. But as I understand it, it went through many different, many different hands. And the question at the end was, because the sovereigns were claiming the ship, which was potentially a ship of war, does that mean that the court could not adjudicate the ownership of cargo on the ship? And Justice Story said no. No, but he is, isn't the, the mm-hmm. concern about the applicability of that case to this one uh, is precisely the reason you said it was it was a suit between sovereigns, uh, and and we're talking here about the sovereign immunity defense in a suit by an individual, uh, and it's it's rather a stretch to take that as as the basis for for your law in this case well i would i would think that the act of state doctrine which is what we were talking about would it would be implicated even more strongly in a in a suit involving multiple sovereigns than it would with regard to just an individual against a, a, a sovereign and I, mm-hmm. I the government makes the position i think for the first time today that the expropriation clause sort of appeared from nowhere but i don't think that's the case the first Section of 1605A3 very clearly is the Santissima Trinidad case. That's the property is inside the United States in connection with the commercial activity. The second clause, I believe, arises out of the Cuban expropriation cases and the government's experience in those cases. And it was the intention of the government in 1976 when the executive branch proposed this law and when the Congress enacted it to allow our courts to adjudicate these types of claims. What, what I'm looking for, I'm beginning to understand his answer better. But I, I think I, I, there should be a way, not in your case necessarily, but in general, for the government to say, court, stay out of this case because of the international implications. And what I was thinking is if we, if this is jurisdictional, follow Justice Powell's distinction. That won't be a problem because there'll be other ways for them to do it. But you're gradually closing those doors. One way I had thought of was act of state. But you correctly point out that the act of state doctrine does not bar anything when the claim rests upon a treaty or other unambiguous agreement. And you're quoting the 55 treaty might not help you because it's post-48, but uh, but, uh, but 1907 might help you. So you're there with a treaty. And so they say, well, we can't use that one. And there'll be a lot of cases when we can't. So then I had mentioned this thing called a statement of interest, which I was looking for an explanation because I don't know what it is. Uh, and there's a third thing that you mentioned, which is called a letter about immunity. Well, that won't help them because that's what this statute is. <laughs> See, so so that now we're back with the statement of interest. Now, can, what is this thing, a statement of interest? Can in, in other words, is the statement of interest sufficient to achieve the objective that I was thinking was important, that not necessarily your case, but in many other cases, there has to be a way for the executive to stop the judge from deciding the matter where it really does interfere with foreign relations? What's the, do you see where I'm — you I, see, I, that is the thing that has been floating in my mind. I understand it. settle on. I understand it's, of course, difficult for us to talk about it because there is no statement of interest in this case. But, but I, you can explain to me interest. what a statement of interest is right. and whether a statement of interest is a sufficient legal route to achieve the end that I think is necessary and that they're arguing for. I, I believe if, if the government were to file a statement of interest saying that the prosecution of this particular lawsuit would interfere with the foreign relations of the government, I think a court would be proper in abstaining from adjudicating the case under the political question doctrine, very similar to this Court's holding last term in Garamendi, I think. In your view? I would say it would, it would be very — it would almost always have to. I think, I think the Court should still be allowed to determine whether, whether there is really a basis uh, — for the government's position. I, w- I wouldn't say that our courts necessarily have to bend uh, always to the government's position with regard to a statement of interest. I think that's the, the import of the first National City Bank case and, and, uh, and the, uh, the uh, Sabatino case and, the, and Alfred Dunhill also. But I, I take it that in no, ca- in, in no instance would you concede the appropriateness uh, of, of the statement of interest being considered at the jurisdictional as opposed to the justiciability? That's, that's absolutely correct. We're talking today only about the jurisdiction question. There hasn't been a statement of interest filed. What and there couldn't be a suggestion of immunity. I'm sorry, Your Honor. No, I'm sorry. What, what do you do about Verlinden? 
Verlinden actually is a great case for us, as I realized in reviewing it. Uh, Verlinden is is a retroactive application of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. In that case, it was a foreign company against a foreign state, something for which there was no jurisdiction in the United States prior to the enactment of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. That action arose in 1975. And yet, when it was brought under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act several years later, this Court directed the lower court to adjudicate jurisdiction under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. So that case is exactly a (laughs) — in, if, if anything is retroactive, that's a retroactive application of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. But again, it goes back to this court statement in Landgraf that a jurisdictional statute, statute which confers or ousts jurisdiction, is not impermissibly retroactive. And that, Verlinden that, didn't expressly discuss the retroactivity. It absolutely did not discuss retroactivity. It maybe never occurred to any of the the justices or the parties at that time that a jurisdictional statute like the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act could be in any way. No, but 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 we did say that it wasn't just a jurisdictional statute. That's what we said. The the court said that it was substantive. In in Republic of of Mexico versus Hoffman in 1945, the court refers to sovereign immunity as substantive law. But I think, as this court has said, whether you label the, the law substantive or procedural really isn't the question. The question is, on what activity is, is the statute operating? And here it's operating on the claim to immunity and how that is adjudicated by our courts in deciding whether the court has the jurisdiction. That, that has a bearing on the land graph exception, too. If a statute is, jurisdi- is more than jurisdictional, you know, it, it isn't so easily disposed of under land graph. It's correct, but I think this case presents a much better case than the two cases cited in Landgraf, the Andrews case and U.S. versus Alabama. Uh, although U.S. versus Alabama you could distinguish as something seeking only injunctive relief and therefore perspective. In Andrews, this is a case brought against the U.S. government after the U.S. government, or while the case is pending, I think, the statute has changed to take away the amount in controversy requirement. So in other words, very clearly before the suit could not proceed. Now the statute's been changed without any suggestion of retroactivity in the enactment. And the Court says, this is 1978, I think, it's of no moment that the, this jurisdictional statute has been changed now to allow a suit against in, in a sovereign entity, the United States. Uh, so I think this case presents actually a much better, uh, much better case because here, and these are other points that I wanted to raise, uh, I believe the text of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act demonstrates that it was intended to apply to all claims to immunity, regardless of when the acts took place, uh, the underlying acts took place. Our, our third point — May I just ask you on that? I mean, isn't the objection to that uh, that, the, that the subject matter we're concerned with here is a subject matter which is defined in terms of property and the history of that property? Uh, and the history of that property as expropriated necessarily raises a time question. Uh, and if the time is prior to the, the enactment of the statute, we necessarily, by the definition of present subject matter, get into an issue of retroactivity. What, what's the answer to that? Well, the answer is, again, in Landgraf, that not every statute which affects prior events is impermissibly retroactive. And, and my point was — But it's not impermissibly retroactive, but it raises a question about the permissibility of a retroactive application. Well, I, my view is that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is, is a statute that is designed to take away the immunity decision from the State Department and place it in the hands of judges. And the purpose of the statute was that, henceforth, all claims to immunity should be adjudicated under this procedure, not the old procedure. In other words, the U.S. government's position yeah, should — But even, even that, with respect, it seems to me that that begs the question. The Court is going to adjudicate them. The question is whether, in adjudicating them, it is going to draw a line based on, on, on this temporal consideration. That still leaves it in the hands of the Court. But the question is whether, in the hands of the Court, retroactivity ought to be a basis for making the jurisdictional decision. I, 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 don't, I don't see, I don't think that it is with regard to the text of this statute. I, even though the statute does refer to uh, events that could take place prior to the enactment, the purpose of the statute, which is what I think the analysis requires uh, that we consider, is to change the form of the adjudication from the old State Department procedure to the, to the court procedure under these 
specific uh, rules. How did you but the, the discussion about the statement of interest then fit in. It seems to me what you just said is they meant to take it away from the State Department and put it in the hands of the court. The, immu- the immunity consideration, yes, but I think the statute, uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, was not intended to change the rules, for example, with the Act of State doctrine or with the statute of limitations or with any of the other doctrines that might bar uh, an older claim from, from entering court. Um, our third point this I don't want to spend too much time on, but it's our view that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act merely codified the common law of sovereign immunity and therefore did not substantially change the law. And this is not only my opinion. Uh, if one looks at the State Department circular that was sent out in 1976 to foreign states, uh, it says this enactment will not substantially alter the rules for deciding sovereign immunity questions in U.S. courts. So it was the position of the State Department at the time that they proposed this legislation that it merely codified what the State Department then considered to be the rules of sovereign immunity. And we have an interesting situation, I think an unprecedented situation, because the common law itself depended on the views of the State Department. So we have a little bit of a reflexive situation. Uh, the way I look at it, let us suppose, for example, that the that instead of enacting the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, they issued another Tate letter, uh, another letter that merely said, henceforth, we want the courts to adjudicate things under this, uh, under this regime. So it's not a new statute. It's just a suggestion to the courts on how to decide cases. Under this court's uh, ruling with regard to common law, non-statutory law, of course, that, that approach would have to be applied retroactively. And I don't think it's any less retroactive uh, just because the executive branch sent it over to Congress and said, we want you to pass the statute also. Um, Any more retroactive. Any more retroactive. Our last last point uh, is really uh, the basis for the Ninth Circuit's decision, and that is, as to these parties, in this case, there is no impermissibly retroactive effect because Austria could never have had any expectation of immunity. Uh, with regard to Mrs. Altman's claims. That would be a pretty good nightmare, wouldn't it, if we had to have judges trying to work out on a case-by-case basis, country-by-country, whether Turkey in 1921, when it was an enemy, had a, didn't have an expectation of being treated as a sovereign, but Hungary in 1962 had a different expectation, etc. I mean, that, that, I think their point on that's a pretty good one, isn't well, it? Well, it, it's, it's, but it's not a point about retroactivity, Your Honor. Well, it is, because they're saying that unless you treat these things as a whole, you won't understand the problem. And even if in your case the country had no expectation, there are so many countries that did, that uh, and going into it case by case is so difficult that it would be better to have an absolute rule. That's their argument. I, it would be better, but that's not really how the Court's retroactivity analysis has gone over the last 10 years. And, and that's, that's why I certainly favor some of the earlier arguments. I think it's easier to decide the case on those rather than the way the Ninth Circuit did in evaluating the expectations. But if one doesn't decide in our favor on all of those other arguments, that the statute itself is jurisdictional, that Congress intended it to apply, that there's really no change in the law because it's the same as the common law of sovereign immunity, then really under Hughes one has to look at whether, as to the parties of this case, there is any retroactive effect. And that, that's, that's what the Hughes holding is. Uh, it's a statute phrased jurisdictionally, but let's look at what happened here. You have a new plaintiff with new incentives and a defense, substantive defense taken away. That's the Hughes case. And so it requires you to look outside the four corners of the statute to look at what was, what are you comparing uh, the statute to? When, when in Hughes the Court said uh, if it determines whether a cause of action can proceed and not where, the where question, of course, implies that you have to look and see if there are other jurisdictions where the case could be brought. And in this case, as we've made very clear, Austria could always have been sued, at least since it was reestablished after World War II, for these acts. And as a matter of fact, Austria was required by the United States to enact restitution laws that were designed to afford people like Mrs. Altman relief. They have never asserted sovereign immunity in these claims in their own courts, and they would not have been allowed to by the U.S. government. 
And that sentiment, of course, is echoed in the subsequent treaty in 1955, and it's echoed in the Bernstein letter in 1948, that as to expropriations, as to property taken from Jewish families in violation of international law, this country does not recognize sovereign immunity anywhere, not in the states where, where, uh, that were involved and not in the United States. And that, that's, that's our last point, and that's the Ninth Circuit's position. If the Court has no further questions. Is it, is it correct that, uh, that we would be uh, uh, out of step with uh, all other countries if we, uh, we allow this suit to proceed? Well, certainly not as a matter of, of the statute. Are, are, in terms no, of no. I mean, I mean, have have all other countries when they've changed to the new modern notion of limited sovereign immunity, have they all declined to to apply it in a manner uh, that the government here would call retroactive? Right. I, I I don't know how all states have done it. I know that, for example, in Austria, we cited the Drale case, which concerned a post-war communist expropriation of a of a subsidiary company in Czechoslovakia and a German company was allowed to sue Czechoslovakia in Austria concerning the trademarks and, uh, and the expropriation and have an Austrian court rule whether that expropriation violated international law. So I would say as to Austria, uh, the, the argument is, and, and I think we cited also in our brief uh, a statement by an Austrian professor, uh, Seidel Hohenfelden, who said that the uh, courts, there's nothing in international law that prevents courts from adjudicating the uh, rights and property taken in violation of international law. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Schoenberg. Uh, Mr. Cooper, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just on that last point, the draw case, um, which is one that uh, we address in our reply brief, um, does not stand for the proposition um, that uh, Czechoslovakia's expropriation could be second-guessed in Austria. Quite the contrary. Austria determined that the legality of Czechoslovakia's activities um, in their own in its own country um, were not subject to reconsideration in Austria. Austria concerned itself only with whether, um, given its own um, neutrality um, as between Czechoslovakia and Germany, whether Austria could give effect to an expropriation as an act of war, and it determined. Um, that it could not, with respect to property, located in Austria. That issue has nothing to do with what's before the Court today. Sovereign immunity isn't merely a form selection uh, rule. It confers on the foreign state um, the right to choose whether and where to be sued. That's a substantive right. It's a right that this country has always understood um, as a right in a sovereign. Uh, Austria's choice Um, if it did so so choose, the circumstances under which it would provide remedies in its own country, either by statute or in its own courts, doesn't constitute a waiver of the sovereignty to which um, it had um, uh, been accorded in this country um, throughout the time (coughs) period up to 1976. So this country has always recognized the difference between a sovereign's right to create a remedy And this country has done so in its own um, instances with respect to um, events that uh, were claimed to be the subject of reparations. And by doing so, it has never suggested that it thought it was subjecting itself to the jurisdiction of a foreign court for individual claims to be able to um, look for more than the statute in the United States provided for. Um, In addition, um, with respect to the law immediately prior um, to the enactment of the FSIA, I think the suggestion was that somehow um, the United States had had eroded um, the expropriation rule um, or that Congress thought that it was adopting um, the uh, codifying the law of the land with respect to expropriation in the FSIA, and that plainly is not true. Um, The legislative history um, and, more importantly, the statements of the State Department, um, in particular the, uh, uh, the digest by John Boyd, um, with respect to um, State Department decisions from 1952 to 1976 cited in our brief, make it clear that the State Department considered this to be a fundamental change in the law. Um, <clears throat> the conduct being regulated here is expropriation, um, or at the very least possession that goes back to um, events in 1948 alleged in the complaint. Um, it is not the mere um, question of the exercise of jurisdiction here um, or, worse yet, um, this mere substitution of another uh, tribunal. Um, this is something that Congress um, 
focused on in each of the uh, expropriation exceptions. It identified the conduct that it thought the foreign sovereign had engaged in that justified one of our narrow exceptions to the general concept of foreign sovereign immunity. Whether that was an express waiver under A-1, whether that was the exercise of commercial conduct that any private party could engage in under A-2, or the, or the expropriation of property in violation of international law in A-3, Congress identified the conduct that it thought justified the lifting of the generally applicable foreign sovereign immunity and decided that's the conduct we want to regulate. That's what we think justifies the variance from our general rule with respect to sovereigns. And that is a change in the law that requires application of the retroactivity analysis to treat those sovereigns fairly. If there are no further questions, I have nothing. Thank you, Mr. Cooper. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.